Welcome to the Happy Saver podcast. I'm Ruth and I write a personal finance blog here in New Zealand. Now because New Zealand is a really small place, it's seriously more like a village and the people I seek out are often uncomfortable having their story told in public, you will hear their stories from me and not directly from them so that they can retain their privacy. Plus, I could talk for an Olympic sport, so by doing it this way, you get a greatly edited version of the conversations I've had. And I just chat to people, I learn their story and condense it down so that you can hear helpful, relatable stories from Kiwis who are sharing their experiences, tips and point of view on personal finance in New Zealand. I'm in the South Island again this week. Actually, this series has had quite a South Island focus, which was more by luck than design. And I spoke with Nina, who lives in the seaside rural town of Omaru. She was a lovely woman to chat to. She is 28, is a part-time accountant, married to 32-year-old Jack, who was a plumbing apprentice, and they have three children, aged five, three, and just one year old. Now these are not their real names, but all the Ninas and Jacks I know are really interesting people, so those names felt appropriate. But before I tell you all about Nina and Jack, I just have a quick message from Hatch, today's sponsor. I'm excited to have Hatch supporting today's episode because they make investing in the world's most recognisable companies and funds easy and affordable. Hatch is Kiwi Wealth's investing platform and as part of the Kiwi Group family, they are 100% Kiwi owned and are committed to helping Kiwis grow their wealth long term. Whether you're new to investing or an experienced Wolf of Wall Street, you can be a shareholder in the brands you know and love and back the companies you grew up with like Microsoft and Apple. Or back a green future with groundbreaking brands like Tesla and Beyond Meat. The team behind Hatch is dedicated to helping Kiwis learn that they can get their money working harder. So if you're ready to take your first step, head to hatch.as forward slash the happy saver. Nina grew up in a smallish town on the east coast of the North Island. Like me, she is the youngest of five kids and also like me, they are all very close in age. Although they lived in town, they were actually all homeschooled, helped in large part by the fact that her mum is a qualified primary school teacher. Nina said that her parents had intended to send them to school, but each time they began the process, something cropped up, so the homeschooling continued right through. Her dad grew up in Tokoroa, only learned to read at the age of 12 when his grandma taught him, and he went on to start a successful career as a fitter in Turner. Nina said that she had been speaking to her dad recently, And he said to her that money was tight growing up, with her parents having to save up and budget carefully if they wanted to take the family of seven anywhere. But she said that although they lived in town, they were actually pretty rural and they spent a lot of time out in nature, tramping and having fun outdoors, which is an excellent and cheap way to entertain a bunch of kids. I was delighted to hear that financial education was very much a part of her homeschooling, Her own parents were themselves never taught how to save money, so they wanted to ensure that they teach their kids how to handle money, how to earn it, save it, invest it, and plan ahead for upcoming expenses. Her mum had Nina and her siblings reading one of my favourite money-related books early on. It's called The Richest Man in Babylon by George S. Klassen. She said that her parents also got keen on Robert Kiyosaki of Rich Dad, Poor Dad fame for a while, even going so far as to buy the cash flow board game that he released, a game that promised to teach your kids financial literacy, investing and teach them to be wealthy and what the game promised would be the ultimate 
battle for financial supremacy. Crikey. However, I've heard about Robert Kiyosaki's murky past where he went from boom to bust a few times and it was because of this that they went off him and his teachings over time. Still, it sounds like he managed to impart some knowledge in the brief time they studied him. She also learned about Warren Buffett via her schooling and this was well before he was a household name which really did show that her mum was trying to expose her to quite a wide range of people in the financial world. Nina said that her mum would not just give them one book to read on a topic, but three or four others so that she could read widely and form a more rounded opinion about a topic, spotting different views and biases of each author. Nina said that critical thinking and logic formed a big part of their learning. She said that they had a good education, but it was stressful for her mum to teach them all, plus it created quite a different kind of parent-child relationship as she yo-yoed from teacher to mum. Now, as a parent herself, she has made the choice to start her own kids at school. Her parents never, ever gave them money. If they wanted some, they had to work. So from the age of just 11, she had a daily paper run which would earn her $16 per week. From the age of about 14, she had to buy her own clothes with her own money. And this went a long way in teaching her the value of money and how to budget and to plan. She was also really encouraged to not just follow the share market, but buy in, and from the age of 13, she remembers that she would add her money to her parents, and they would buy on their behalf, and then divvy out how many shares each child had. And she remembers that her very first shares were Tower and Fletcher Forests, then also some on the ASX and the TSX, which is the Australian and the Toronto Stock Exchanges. She remembers buying names like Almaden Minerals, Silver Wheaton and Atnas, and many others she has since forgotten about. It was far harder back then to invest internationally. Now we have the likes of Hatch and Sharesies to give us access to some international markets. So her parents clearly had quite a bit of knowledge and a brokerage account to be able to make all of these investments. Nina also kept a small book with a ledger in the back where every couple of weeks she would Google all of the share prices and look up the currency conversions and map it all out in her book. She would note down each stock she was following and track its progress and her aim at that time was to have enough money saved to pay for her university degree before she started her study, which she predicted to be about $15,000 at that time. This ledger of hers was also used to write down everything she spent her money on, something she was taught to do by her mother and something that Nina said she had an aptitude for when her siblings were less interested. She recalls that her mum always kept all of her receipts and on the last Saturday of each month she would sit down and put them all in her own book and she recorded all of the household finances really well. At 15, Nina started working about four hours a day at a local bakery as this would give her money to add to her savings for university. Now four hours a day for a school kid is quite a bit but Nina said that this never got in the way of her schooling. Their school times were very structured between the hours of 8 and 3 each weekday, but after those times they were free to work. Nina qualified for university and finished school early at the age of just 17, but her dad thought she was too young to leave home and head off to university. Her parents had a deal with all of their kids. The only time they would give them money was when they would pay for their living costs if they were living away from home. Nina is of Christian faith, which meant that they would have to board with family or friends if they were away from home, and she had decided by then that she wanted to be an accountant, but because she couldn't leave home yet due to being too young, she went all over town asking for work in that field, 
getting a job in 2010 working 20 hours a week while she studied online full-time for a Bachelor of Accountancy through Massey University. She bought a moped so that she had transport and that got her from home to work and around town and all up it took her three years to graduate, finishing at the end of 2012 and moving straight into full-time work. At the beginning of her degree though in 2010, aged just 17, she put some of her university savings into a term deposit and then she took out a student loan for course costs, which she intended to pay off as soon as she finished her study. The remainder of her money was being put to work in the share market and I enjoyed one story she told me where she went into her bank because she wanted to transfer about $10,000 into a foreign exchange fund in Finland. She said that all the teller ladies gathered around telling her that it was a scam and how on earth did she have that much money anyway and if she made this transaction she would likely never get her money back. She said she had been investing under the guidance of her family for years. They had also invested in this very fund and they had all got their money back but she left the bank having not made the transaction feeling a bit shaken up by all the scrutiny. But, not one to be deterred, she went back another day and made the international transfer. She left it invested for about two years and made a couple of thousand dollars when she pulled it out. She said of the investments made at that time that they were always quite short-term investments, just a couple of months or a couple of years, and she is looking forward to investing for the long term in the years ahead. Now, I tell you, for a 17-year-old to make such sound decisions is impressive. I hear of people whose plan it is to draw down on a student loan so they can invest their saved money instead, but many fail to follow through and at the end of their study, they end up with a student loan that they can't pay back, having also spent all the money that they had invested. During her study, she was able to work enough hours to earn a good income while knocking out her study at the same time, and all up, she took on a student loan debt of $15,000 which, you might recall, was exactly how much money she had saved. I tell you, Nina is smart. During these three years of study, she met Jack. He didn't grow up with much money either, and he had actually moved from South Africa to New Zealand with his parents and siblings when he was about 20 years old. His parents came on a working visa, which meant that the kids were not allowed to work for the three years it took to get their residency. Neither could they study because they would have had to pay international fees, which they simply could not afford. So this was a really hard time for him and his family, a young guy, keen to work, but he simply, legally could not. So to keep himself sane, he carried out unpaid work, which at least gave him something to do and some work experience. And when they met, he was driving around in a battered old Honda with no muffler, which was very much on its last legs. With a marriage imminent, together they discussed him getting a better car that would cost a maximum of $4,000. However, encouraged by his own parents, who just wanted to see them in a good car, they said, he went out and bought one for $10,000 on finance. Now, they married in 2012, and it turns out that there was actually something her parents would pay for, and that was the cost of their wedding, which was about $10,000. The reason being that her parents didn't want these two beginning their married life in debt, and hard work and diligent management of their own money meant that they could afford to do so. But as soon as they were married, she said, right, your money is now my money and my money is now your money. And they combined all of their finances. From here on in, they were a team when it came to any money decisions. She finished her study and they both got work. She is an accountant and him on a dairy farm. And she immediately said, we are paying the car off. 
As soon as that was done, she hit her $15,000 student loan and paid it off in full, as per her original plan. Now, I was pretty happy to hear this, but I did point out to her that many others don't really worry about their student loans and just let them be siphoned out of their wages for years to come. So why was she different, I asked. What made her believe that she could and should pay off debt? She did not like seeing a student loan payment deducted from her pay, meaning that every single week she took home a reduced salary. She just didn't like it one bit. Also, at that time, if you made any payment over $500, you saved 10%, which she said was a great thing. So she just wanted it gone because then she wouldn't get a deduction in her wages. She hates debt and to her it is simply an extra noose around your neck and she far prefers the feeling of being debt free. Plus she kept in mind that the New Zealand taxpayer put up the money for the scheme and therefore you should pay them back and she said to others, stop feeling so entitled, you borrowed it, so pay it back. And I feel the same. You borrowed the money, it just happened to be from the government and they cut you a great deal of interest-free because they were trying to reduce the burden. So in my mind, that should be more of an incentive to get rid of it, not less. And I wonder, with interest rates going so low on mortgages, if people might implement the same philosophy with their bank. It's so cheap to borrow, why would I bother paying it back? I suspect your bank might not be quite so accommodating with that point of view, don't you? In 2013, they moved to Omaru so he could take up a dairy farming opportunity. They had a free house to live in and he earned $1,500 a fortnight. She found work with an accounting firm in the town, yet with a degree and three years of experience, she was only earning $18 an hour. After paying moving costs of about seven grand, they had $5,000 left in the bank, one car, one cheap farm ute, but no debt. She said of her job as an accountant that she is a big picture thinker and she said that she finds it hard seeing clients who have a lot of money yet are never thankful for what they have. She deals with really wealthy people in her job, yet in her social life and via her church, she also interacts with poorer people, and it's hard to reconcile the two. And as a Christian, she believes that her money is God's money and is a blessing. She said, give me neither poverty nor riches, and that while money is important in life, it's not overly important, and if you have a lot of money, it makes sense in her mind to also give a lot and help others. Feeling contentment for what she has is huge, as is looking out for other people. It's just a huge part of who she is. By mid-2014, Jack finished with dairy farming, and this left them without a place to live. They wanted to use their KiwiSaver to buy a first home, but she had not been in the scheme long enough, and he could not access his until later in 2014. That is when he would have been in the scheme for three years and would be eligible to withdraw all but $1,000 and also receive a $3,000 Homestart grant. There was quite a bit of back and forth with their bank before they were finally approved for a mortgage of $174,000 to buy a house which was valued at $217,000. They had been diligently saving leading up to this and combined with his KiwiSaver and the grant, they managed to put down a deposit of $43,000 on their new home. They locked in a 6.25% interest rate for three years because they were told that rates were only going to go up, which turned out not to be true, of course. Now, just a few months later, they welcomed their first child. Jack had always wanted to be a plumber, so went looking for an apprenticeship, but in a new town, it was hard to make the right connections to find an employer who was in need of an apprentice. Apprenticeships in small towns just don't come up that often. It's a supply and demand thing. So he took on a job at a farm supply store as a salesman kind of yard hand 
at a minimum wage of just $520 a week, and he kept his hopes up. After they were settled into their first house and he was working while she was looking after their baby, her own parents actually offered them a loan of $40,000 with an interest rate that was based on current term deposit rates. On April the 1st each year, they would check in with the TSB bank and see what their term deposit rate was, and that would set the rate for the coming year. Now, I wondered why they did that, suddenly offering their money given that their kids were taught from a very young age to be self-sufficient. She had no idea, but was pretty happy to accept the deal. She said that if you borrow off your parents, you have to honour that, so by accepting it, they committed to a payment plan. They paid break fees to their own bank of $1,200, but she said that it was still worth it to be able to put a chunk of $40,000 onto their mortgage debt. So their goal was to pay this house off as fast as possible over the next couple of years and then move to a small lifestyle property where they could settle in and raise their family. But as time went by, her husband was growing to really dislike living in town. She said that he grew up in the middle of nowhere, practically on the edge of a desert, she said, and he could not handle living in town in such close quarters with his neighbours. So as luck would have it, she stumbled upon a five-acre lifestyle property for sale with an old 1930s three-bedroom home that needed a ton of work, and she pretty quickly did a drive-by with a friend while Jack was at work. As soon as they were able, they viewed the property together and did a walk around, and he knew the place was for them, even though it was stepping outside of the plan that they had set for themselves. Although she was not overly taken with the house because it needed so much work, she really wanted to help his dream of living rurally come true. So they had their offer of $367,000 accepted, which was not conditional on them selling their first house, otherwise they would have missed out, and they moved in late 2016 while she was pregnant with their second child. So now their mortgage increased up to $264,000 plus the money owed to her parents, and for three short weeks they owned two houses before the first one which they paid $217,000 for, sold for $237,000. All up, she said that they lost money on that place due to the money that they had spent on repairs while living there and the real estate agent fees of $15,000 they had to pay when they sold it. And that same home recently sold again for $349,000. So you could assume that those people did make some money unless they did lots of repairs that is, and it also shows that house prices don't always increase within the time frame that you set yourself. So much of it is just down to luck. Over the last couple of years, his parents have come and stayed and helped with some pretty big renovations, including double glazing, insulating, and rejibbing the place. They cash flowed these renovations and did all the work themselves to save on costs, and she estimates they have probably spent about $35,000 doing it over the last four years. And of these renovations, she said that they are constantly eating up their savings, which she is not happy about. But there is an end in sight, and although they are spending, it's low in comparison with others. Today their home is valued at about $470,000, and Nina referred to it on a number of occasions as their forever home, and I actually believed her and can see them staying put here for many years to come. Back when they bought the lifestyle block, Jack's income was only $607 a week, and she was now working a 20-hour week, so bringing in about $450 a week, so a combined before-tax income of about $1,057 per week, which is not a lot of money when you have a mortgage debt of about $300,000. But finally, in mid-2017 and in his late 20s, Jack got the plumbing apprenticeship he was after, 
and he instantly earned higher wages. It's a four-year apprenticeship, which he will finish in mid-2021, so not long to go now, which is exciting for them both. He is currently paid $24 an hour, but he will get a pay increase when he qualifies that will take him up to $30 an hour with tool allowance. But it has cost them thousands of dollars over the four years to get him trained, with various course-related costs and him needing to buy the tools of his trade as well, which although he will probably have them for life, they often don't come cheap. The current Labour government is offering a much cheaper ride to those wanting to start an apprenticeship, but it's too late for Jack at this stage of the game. But for new people coming through, it is an excellent option. Today they have three children and Nina is working a 15-hour week earning $410 after tax a week, while Jack is working full-time earning $830 after tax a week. Because of their low incomes, they also receive a Working for Families payment of $190 a week for their three children. So a total income of $1,430 each week, which she said they can comfortably live on. Of this, they tithe 10% to their church and community, and they are currently saving $250 each week for future renovations, leaving $1,037 for everything else, including mortgage payments. She said of their house that it's a bottomless pit when it comes to how much money they could spend on the place. So more recently, they have put in place this specific amount so that they don't go overboard with it. And she is hoping that by Christmas 2020, they have it to a point where the whole home is warm, dry and livable. And they may extend it eventually, but there is no room in any budget for such an expense in the short term. In November 2020, the mortgage is up for renewal. And because mortgage rates have gone so low, they will take advantage of that lower rate and increase their payments to $320 per week, plus continue the repayments to her parents. She said that this will mean that their loan principal will reduce by $200 per week. When Jack's pay rise comes in, it will be put towards debt repayment too, and they have used New Zealand home loans to structure their lending, and she likes a system they use called DebtNav because this gives an end date to their mortgage, and it will be when Jack turns 40. So that's a real line in the sand to aim for. Nina also tracks their net worth these days, including their KiwiSaver, cars and house, and theirs is currently sitting at around $200,000 and is quietly growing by the day. She looks at her bank accounts on a daily basis just to check that they are on track, and she is also using Pocketsmith to budget, but she said that she actually struggles to stick to a budget. She said that sometimes their attitude is great and they stick to it, but sometimes they get a bit lax and they need to return to their budget. She said that it kind of works out okay because neither of them are overly spendy people anyway, but still, they need to be cautious and not let wasteful spending slip in if they want to reach those goals of theirs. They still have accounts with the BNZ where she saves up some specific allowances for kids' clothing for her garden. They have a huge amount of garden, plus an account for each child to cover their expenses. She has accounts for rates, insurances, holidays, and car maintenance. And she also has a lot of automatic payments set up that she can manage her money really well. And as for investments, well, there is little room in her budget for that too because their focus is very much on getting rid of debt. But she has begun a small weekly payment of $30 going into Kernel where she puts half into the New Zealand 20 fund and half into the New Zealand small and mid-cap opportunities fund. After being exposed to investing throughout her teenage years, she's pretty keen to get to a point where she can start to invest longer term. So until she can do that, she's making a start and learning the ropes. And whereas growing up she did more short-term investments, 
By choosing an index fund, she is now very much thinking long-term. They both have KiwiSaver, hers is in a Simplicity Growth Fund, and his is with BNZ, with a third in a Balance Fund and two-thirds in a Growth Fund. So these two, they have settled into the pattern of life, working, raising their three kids and working on their home. And as you can see, Nina handles all the financial stuff, keeps accurate records of what's going on and is also budgeting and projecting forward. She said she is quite black and white about it all. She is an accountant after all. And Jack's role in this is that he just knows to not spend money. So with her being all over this stuff, I did wonder how they handled money as a couple and how much they were communicating about decisions being made. She was actually feeling uncomfortable about this, that it was all on her to make sure she got things right for all of them, and she was feeling the burden of responsibility for this. So more recently, and nervously I should point out, she had a chat with her husband. The reason for her nervousness was that previous conversations hadn't always gone so well, and they put this down to picking the wrong moment to talk. He said that she would ask him money-related questions at the wrong time, say late at night when he was tired after work, and when maybe she was really in the right headspace of thinking and talking about money, he simply was not, and her questions would simply blindside him. Now, I can completely relate to this, as I do exactly the same to Johnny. I'm at my best in the early AM, and he, on the other hand, is barely awake and not really in any position to make a coherent decision. So now they make an appointment about once a month to sit down and talk specifically about their household finances, something Scott Pape from the Barefoot Investor really advocates for. And it just means that both of them can mentally be prepared for the conversation and both come to the table in the right headspace to chat. If something else crops up outside of that meeting time, well, they will discuss that too. The lines of communication are now very much open. And now Jack comes to the table mentally prepared and he is more than happy to talk about it as he sees that she finds it stressful managing everything on her own. She wants to make family decisions, not do all the deciding by herself. She said that this open communication is a huge relief to her and from these catch-ups they've both realised that they want the same thing, to be debt-free, so it's really united them to reach a common goal which is music to my ears. And I think what it also reminds me of is to not assume that once you are married or have reached a point in your relationship where you have decided to work together on your money, it's not a one and done conversation. You have to regularly check in with each other and see that you are both happy with the parameters of the agreement, so to speak. I often speak with people who say that either they handle all the financial stuff or their partner does, and it's always been that way. But just because it's always been that way does not mean that either of them continue to be happy with the situation. And that is why open and honest communication around money is just so crucial. It's just a way to check in with each other and check you are both happy with the arrangements. Now Nina touched on it above. It's stressful making all of the decisions because there is that doubt of what if I've got this wrong? So if you can talk it through with someone else, you can double check your decision making and that way if something does go wrong, you can take ownership of the mistake together and when things go well, you can celebrate the success together. Through her work as an accountant, Nina said that she sees clients stressing about money while trying to work out how to get rich. But the only secret she sees is that those who communicate well, who spend less than they earn and live within their means, get ahead a whole lot faster. And that is pretty much what that book I referred to earlier, The Richest Man in Babylon, says. So does she have anyone else in her life apart from her husband that she can openly talk about money with now? 
Well, one of her sisters has just read The Barefoot Investor, so she was excited to chat with Nina about that. Plus, she has an older brother that she can talk to. And she also talks to her parents, which is great because they have wisdom to share. But they are at a different stage of their life, but it's good to get their perspective on her own situation. But as for close friends, not so much. They are not on the same page, which is a great shame to her. So what does Nina consider to be her biggest financial triumph? Probably buying their current house. She talked about it being their forever home, a pretty well-worn phrase, but I get the feeling from these two that she might actually be right. She thinks of it as that final resting place in a way because they know they can plant a tree and be there for years to come to watch it reach maturity. She said of the town of Omaru that it is small enough, with about 14,000 people, to have so much for the family to do, while it also has everything they need shopping-wise, and if it doesn't, well, they can just find it online. And she said that it didn't hit her until she read The Barefoot Investor just how much marketing is trying its hardest to get into our minds, telling us to spend, and also telling us that we don't have enough money to really be happy, but that if we just keep buying more, it will increase our happiness, which is just so blatantly untrue. So I agree with her that when you live in a small town, so much of the temptation to spend is just not there, making a simple life actually pretty darn enjoyable. And what about her greatest financial flop? Well, that would be the car he bought on finance just before they married. And while he was fully entitled to make monetary decisions on his own because he wasn't married at that stage, he also signed up to all the insurances that their salesman offered, which was also a stupid decision, she pointed out. I also asked her what was the most extravagant thing that she has purchased for herself in the last 90 days. And her fast answer was more sheets of jib board for the house. But the long answer was a recent weekend away for just the two of them in Tekapo so she could celebrate her 28th birthday. She said that they probably only spent about $300, but it was blissfully child-free. Looking ahead, their plan is to become mortgage-free as soon as possible. She says that they are not wealthy, but they are certainly comfortable. And her future plans involve finding out how much money they need to have invested so that they can enjoy a good retirement when the time comes. They have no plans to retire early, as many who follow the FIRE movement do, but she would like to retire semi-young, she said. Jack loves to travel, she's not so fussed about it, so there will be some overseas trips in their future, but with the kids so young, just five, three and one, plus with a pandemic on the loose, they are happily home-based for now. She wants to get the kids sorted, but like her own upbringing, she does not plan to help them out too much financially. Instead, she plans to educate them about money, like she was educated growing up. And along the lines of what the Barefoot Investor advocates, they will also equip their kids to make their own way in life as financially fit adults. And as far as day-to-day money habits go, she meal plans when she can, and she does her grocery shopping online, spending about $180 a week for this family of five. They have their own cows and sheep, which supply them with meat as well, and they actually only go out to restaurants for dinner once or twice a year, although through their church they do a lot of potluck dinners with other families, where each family brings some delicious home-cooked food to share. However, if she is working from the office, she will often buy her own lunch. She said having got three kids organised and out the door, she is due a treat, which I agree with. Two of her kids go to daycare for two days a week, where she pays just $5.75 per child per hour. And once they reach the age of three, they are entitled to 20 free hours. So in total, it's costing just $44 a week. Now, I'm a bit out of touch with childcare rates these days, but thinking back to a previous podcast where I recall a payment of hundreds of dollars a week for just one child, this sounds crazy cheap to me. 
But the difference is that Nina works part-time, so she has them in her care most of the time. They do use a credit card, which they pay off in full each month. Plus, when Jack started his apprenticeship, they did take out a $2,000 zero-interest overdraft. When his apprenticeship comes to an end, they are expecting a payout of holiday pay, and this will be used to clear and close this debt. Now, as a non-churchgoer myself, and because I've spoken to a few people of faith lately, I was interested to know what role the church plays in her education around how to handle money. As part of a church, she said that it's like a big extended whānau, where there are the same general core beliefs amongst those who attend. So in her experience, she has noted that there isn't much reason to show off because that isn't what tends to impress people. Her church community is made up of a fair slice of social strata and acceptance isn't based on the appearance of being well off and there are generally many generations attending the same church so everyone is accepted. And although not specifically taught about money at church, generosity is widely taught from practices like making meals for people that have just had a baby through to giving money to those in need in the community or in poorer countries around the world. As an accountant, she has often seen some huge drawings of clients and she often wonders where the money goes because they are always stressing about money and how to get rich and buy themselves the next item on their list. Nina, on her lower income, leads a far more contented lifestyle. Now, as for books, podcasts or blogs that she would recommend, she likes this podcast and my blog, Too Kind, thank you Nina. Uh, She likes Mary Holm, some Francis Cook content, and she also follows quite a few people on Instagram tracking down those in a similar situation to her so that she can follow along with their journey. And I really like Instagram for that too. It's a pretty easy place to find your tribe. Now, righto, before I wrap up, I have another quick message from Hatch, today's sponsor. Thanks again to Hatch for supporting today's episode. Whether you're new to investing or an experienced Wolf of Wall Street, you can be a shareholder in the brands you know and love. So if you're ready to take your first step, head to hatch.as forward slash the happy saver. Firstly, a big thank you to Nina for speaking with me today. In this series, I've spoken to a lot of younger families about how they are navigating life in a world of high housing costs and a tough labour market. And I think I'm on to something here by speaking with people from Invercargill, Dunedin, Omaru and Christchurch. It seems to me that you get a lot more bang for your buck in these centres. Nina said that while their incomes aren't huge, She feels like they live an extremely comfortable life with excess money to pay cash for things they want to do, like house renovations, and also to be able to save and invest. Plus, they have a plan and a date on the calendar for them to pay off their mortgage. It feels to me, as someone looking in from the outside, that their life has balance, and they've found a way to match their income with their expectations, meaning that they can live where they want, work the hours that they want, and be present for their children. Meanwhile, she observes others struggling to survive, save and get ahead when they are on far greater full-time incomes. And with that in mind, I just wanted to finish with something I said earlier. It's a poignant point that she made when she said that the only secret I see is that those that spend less and live within their means get ahead a whole lot faster. So that's all from me this week and I'll be back next Wednesday with another money journey of another Kiwi. 
If you enjoyed today's podcast, please do hit subscribe and it will automatically update in your podcast app each time I release a new episode. And if you want to get in touch, you can find me at thehappysaver.com. And if you feel the urge, leave a review and share this podcast with your friends. Those are the best ways that people can learn about my podcast. And I would love it if you would talk more about money with your own friends and whanau and help me continue to help others be better with money. So until next time, happy saving. Happy saving.